your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2. We're going to read the verses 6 through 16. And if you're in the habit of preparing to read from the liturgical forms book and the confession before I suggest you do, I would say that you should look at it in the Trinity Psalter hymnal uh, this afternoon, and I'll explain why. We're going to read uh, from the Trinity Psalter hymnal, Article 5 of the Belgic Confession. Uh, But we're also going to just pop over to the Westminster Confession, which is also in the back of the Trinity, though not in the liturgical forms and prayers books. But first, 1 Corinthians 2, we're going to start at verse 6, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter, which is verse 16. We have before us the authority of Scripture. Uh, How do we know that the Scripture is the Scripture, that it is indeed the Word of God? With that in mind, listen to what Paul writes here. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived, What God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Then again, Trinity Psalter hymnal, if you turn to page 856, you'll find there the Belgic Confession, Article 5, which is what we're going to study. But we're going to pop over in just a moment to the Westminster Confession of Faith. It does not have and the authority within our midst, but it is an example. Uh, it is a, uh, one of the three statements of faith that Presbyterian churches in the main uh, use, English Presbyterians, those from the uh, English churches. And we'll read what it says about the authority of Scripture as well as it will help elucidate what Paul said and what the Belgic Confession says as well. So Belgic Confession first, page 856, where it says, we receive all these books having just listed the Uh, 66 books of the scriptures we receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulating founding and establishing of our faith and we believe without a doubt all things contained in them not so much because the church receives and approves them as such but above all because the holy spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from god and also because they prove themselves to be from god For even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. And then if you turn to page 920, 920, again, this is just to illustrate, just to demonstrate what it is 
that our brothers and sisters in the Presbyterian churches believe and that it's consistent with what we teach. Page 920, at the very top in the first column, you see point four and five. Those are the two we'll read. Point four, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is true itself, or truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof, our argument whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And that's as far as we'll read, but it is Article 5 that is our text this morning or this afternoon. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have the question before us, a question that is always pressing within the context of our culture and throughout redemptive history. The question of how do we know that the Bible is the Bible? Of course, the word Bible really just means book. It is the book, we might say. But, but we know what we mean when we speak of the Bible. When somebody says the Bible, we're talking about that unique, that special book that lies at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian, a believer of, in God. Those 66 books that we confess to be the true and canonical Word of God. How do we know that they speak with the authority of God? That's a question that actually um, challenges our current culture rather significantly, um, not just on the question of the Bible, but on the question of authority generally. How do we know anyone speaks with authority? And, and, and let me illustrate the challenge here. Uh, you think about, for example, on Twitter, uh, some people need to get the verified, the blue blue checkmark verified account checkmark in order to to say this is really actually me because of course anybody could start a twitter account with the name of anybody uh, on it but but this is a verified account this is account you can trust because the person who's writing these things they are who they say they are and and that's a a, a very modern problem that we have uh, a, a very modern challenge. We have this thing that is now, these things that are now called deep fakes. Maybe you've seen these things. They're computer-generated images. They can take a person and they can get them to say anything. They can get them to, 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 to do it just about anything. They can insert them into just about any situation. Just about anything you see on the internet now becomes suspect because these deep fakes are so convincing you can't tell the difference between that and the truth. And so you start to, to doubt and to wonder, how do I know that what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, is in fact true? Now, of course, deepfakes is just one way in which uh, this, has, this problem has developed within our culture. It's always been there. 
I mean, you think about spin doctors, people who are paid a significant amount of money in order to make you think something uh, their way. They want to spin the message in a particular way. And so when some celebrity, some politician does something that's untoward or inappropriate, they hire one of these spin doctors and they manage to turn it around so much that you think this person has done the right thing and is the, the person that is uh, in the wrong here. They're being mistreated, not anyone else. So that eventually, as a culture, we begin to wonder, who can we believe anymore? Who, who can we trust? Who speaks with authority? Now, as Christians, of course, we have an answer for that. We say God speaks with authority. God is the truth, the way, and the life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We know that He speaks with authority. Even the Scripture tells us that story, doesn't it? That they were surprised because Jesus spoke with authority, not as their teachers did. But how do we know that the Bible is the authority of God's Word? How do we know that it's not just a compilation cobbled together of other religions as so many people claim? How do we know that it's not the collections of a group of followers that desperately wanted to keep the story going? How do we know that the Bible is any different from the Muslim Quran, from the Hindu Vedas, or from the Buddhist Triptaka? These holy books that these religions use They claim that they are the Word of God. We claim ours is the Word of God. How how do we know who's telling the truth? We know that they can't all be true because they're all contradictory. They all tell different stories, different ways of salvation, and they all speak in a way that is very distinct. But how do we know that our book isn't just another book, that it's not just our version of what we think is true? How do we know? Sometimes when we're and trying to answer that question for our children when they're very young and maybe they suddenly ha- happen upon this thought and they say, well, how do we know that it's the Bible, Dad and Mom? Well, the answer sometimes we give is, is that, well, it's because God says it is in, in His Word and in, in His Scripture. We read that in a number of places where God says that this is God's breathed Word, that this is the inspired Word of God. So God says it's His Word. That's kind of challenging, isn't it? Because in the, if the, for the Bible to be true, or no, for, for us to believe that God tells us the Bible is true, we have to believe the Bible, which is this lovely little circle, isn't it? The Bible's the Bible because the Bible says it's the Bible. And that's not very convincing to anyone, or at least it shouldn't be. So how do we know it's the Bible? How do we know it's the Word of God? A number of years ago when I was in seminary, in fact, there were these, this group that came out to purport that they had evidence. They could prove that the Bible was the Word of God because it offered all these predictions and they had this massive uh, computer program that demonstrated that the Bible was in fact the Word of God. Somebody used that same computer program to prove that Moby Dick was the same thing. So it didn't work out in the end. But that's what we want. We want some kind of tangible proof, some kind of thing that we can go, I'm right. I know I'm right because here, this is the proof I hang on to concerning the Word of God. And it is with that in mind that we need to listen to Article 5 of the Belgic Confession. An article that begins by reminding us why we have the Bible. We've heard to some degree already in that we heard in Article 2 that God makes himself known to us through creation and then very particularly, very especially through his word. And then that word speaks to us of Jesus Christ. That word speaks to us 
of salvation. That's what Article 3 spoke of. And then we receive all of these books as Article 5, and these only as holy and canonical for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. That language of holy and canonical is a reference to the uniqueness of these books, that these 66 books and these only are holy, that is, belonging to God, come from God in a very specific and special way, and they are the canon of Scripture. The word canon comes from this idea of a a measuring stick, of a ruler that, that tells you exactly how long something should be. And this measuring stick says that the Bible should be this long And when you lay out all 66 books, that's exactly how long the Bible is. Now that means that you can't take one book away because that would shorten it, and you can't add another book because that would lengthen it. No, the Bible is exactly the right length, exactly the right amount of books, exactly the right books from God for the founding, the perfecting, and the establishing or the regulating of our faith. Now, just by way of an aside, that means, not incidentally, that if we were to find a book written by the Apostle Paul or Peter or any of the other apostles, if some archaeologist were to suddenly come upon another book of the Bible, which is theoretically possible, you think about how Paul writes in Ephesians, saying to them that they should read the letter to the Laodiceans. So let's imagine that some archaeologist now finds a letter to the Laodiceans with Paul's signature on the bottom of it. We wouldn't add it to the Bible. We wouldn't add anything to the Bible. The Bible's perfect the way it is. We don't need anything more. It'll be fascinating to read the letter to the Laodiceans. We'd think it was lovely to know about, but we would not add it to the Bible. Nor would we add those books that the Old Testament refers to. Every so often you read in the Old Testament, is this not written in, and then there's another book referenced. If we were to find them, we wouldn't add them to the Bible because the Bible's perfect the way it is perfect for what God has given it to us for. Now that's what is key to understanding this opening statement in Article 5. The Bible is given for a very specific purpose. It is given for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. Now that's not the only thing the Bible does. The Bible does a lot of things. But that's what it's for, the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. That means it's not merely history, though it is also history. It's not merely morality, how to live your life, though it is also morality. What the Bible is, is a book that enables us, equips us, guides and guards us in our walk with the Lord so that we can know what it means to live in fellowship with the living God. That's its focus from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Every chapter, every verse, every book is concerned with guiding our trust in the Lord, strengthening our trust in the Lord, establishing our trust in the Lord so that in everything we might walk by faith and not by sight. Everything we need to know, therefore, about God and about what He's done for our salvation, about who we are and how we get saved, about how we are to live with each other, with God, and worship Him and and, and glorify His name in all that we do. Everything we need to know about the religious life of the believer is found in that book, in those 66 books of the Bible. And it is important that we approach the Bible in this way, 
lest we subject it to the wrong kind of expectation and standard. The Bible is meant to help us trust in God, to help us understand what God has done and why He's done it. Thus, does it help us? How to do, does it tell us how to develop a, a successful business? I suppose in a way it does, in that it tells you to pay your employees well, it tells you to respect them, it tells you to be honest. But, but it says those things with a concern to your understanding how that's glorifying to God. It doesn't say that if you push these buttons, this will be the outcome. It says, because you've been saved, let this be your glory. Does it tell us how to make use of medical technology? Does it tell us how to answer profoundly challenging ethical questions within a medical sphere? It doesn't, you don't find specific answers in chapter and verse for various challenges that we face when it comes to treating the human body. But it does provide us an understanding of what world we're in and how we should live in the light of who God is and how we should make our decisions in praise of His name. To put it another way, or to borrow the words of Psalm 36, the Word of God allows us to see. In your light, says the psalmist, we see light. So the Bible opens our eyes to see who God is, what He's done on our behalf, and how to orient our entire lives according to that light making the Bible a really big deal for every believer and vital for the strength and the faith and the trust that we have in the Lord. Something that we need to meditate on daily, that we need to value deeply, that we need to digest and internalize persistently. We need to see just how vital the Bible is for our spiritual well-being. It can't be a book that just sits on a shelf. It can't be a book that just collects dust. It has to be a book that lives among us, whose stories and words filter through our conversations, whose examples and testimonies enable us to see the world in a particular way. The Bible comes to show us who God is and what He's done. And that's how we are to approach this Word and how we are to receive it, which places us in a very challenging position. Because now ask the question, how do you know that the Bible's the Bible? If the Bible's given for the regulating and founding and establishing of your faith. That is, if it comes as the teacher, as if it comes as the instructor, as if it comes as the, the one who shows you the truth of who God is, then how do you sit in judgment on it? How do you sit back for a moment and say, listen, now you have to prove yourself to me? Imagine a student saying that to their teacher every time the teacher walked into the room. The teacher would come and say, now let's open our book class to page whatever, and we're going to study this poem by Shakespeare. And now a student in the back puts their hand up and says, can you prove to me that we should live? What are your credentials, please? Well, I have a teaching degree. Could we please see the evidence of that? I have some questions about the legitimacy of your place among us. Now, that maybe sounds like a strange thing that nobody would ever do, but isn't it something that we all do at some point in our development as people? 
As a parent, haven't we all experienced that on some level when our child asked us a question, that simple question that every child asks, when they said, why? Now, in this particular example that I'm thinking of, the child asks why, not in the inquisitive sense, not in the, hey, I want to learn more, could you explain that to me sense, but in the, why should I listen to you sense, in the, why should I do what you're telling me to, who are you to tell me what to do? Isn't that something that our our society experience, isn't that something that our children, that even we at some point in our development experience, a sense that, wait a minute, I want to exercise my own authority. I want to be master of my own existence. I don't want people telling me what to do. And so I say to my parents, who are you to tell me, to tell me how to order my life? Why should I listen to you? Now, when that happens, if dad and mom Try to take the time to prove to this child that they have some authority over them. They've already lost the fight because they've accepted the premise. They've accepted that they have to prove themselves to their child. When they don't, all they have to do is exercise their authority. So it is with God. He doesn't need to prove to you anything. You need to submit to Him. Now, when, that comes, when this comes to the Word of God, what that means is we cannot insist that we will believe only in the Bible once God has demanded, or, or satisfied rather, our demand for proof. Once God proves to us that this is a real letter from Him, then we'll listen to it. That's not allowed. Because that would make God subject to us. That would make us God. And that can never be. But that presents a challenge. Because how can we be convinced that the Bible's the Word of God? How can our neighbors and coworkers that we're ministering to be convinced that this is the Word of God if we can't sit in judgment on it? Now, in the history of the church, there have been a number of answers to that, a number of ways that have been given to try and solve this conundrum. The Roman Catholic Church, for example, has solved this problem, and you note that both in the reference, or that's referenced here in Article 5 and in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is in Chapter 1, Articles 4 and 5, because here we read, we believe without a doubt all things contained in them, not so much because the church receives and approves them. That's a subtle reference to the approach that the Roman Catholic Church takes when it comes to defining and giving the authority of the Bible uh, its due. When the Roman, the Roman Catholic Church says, we decide what the Bible is. We decide what belong, books belong and don't belong. We are the ones who give the Bible its authority. And there's something very appealing about that. Truly there is. Because in that case, all you have to do as a believer and then as a witness, as an evangelist to the world, when somebody says to you, how do you know the Bible is the Bible? All you have to say is because these very smart, very able men who long time ago made these decisions tell me that it is and I trust them. They're lovely people. I trust them. And that's appealing. That is really an appealing approach to things. I don't have to explain it. I don't have to defend it. They've already done it. I can appeal to them. Of course, then that unbelieving neighbor or that unbelieving friend might say, well, how do you know that they're not lying to you? And then you find yourself, of course, in a bit of a challenge. 
Uh, but nonetheless, there is something appealing, isn't it, about saying, well, the church has decided the Bible's the Bible and that's good enough for me. The problem, of course, is that the church wouldn't exist if it weren't for the Bible. Indeed, isn't that exactly what we just read, that it is given for the founding of our faith, you might say, for the establishment of a believing community, or you might put it another way, that the Bible creates the church. The Bible, by its power, by God speaking through it, by God sending forth that light into all the world and converting hearts unto himself and drawing to himself people. Think about Pentecost Sunday when Peter preached, and what did he preach on? He preached on the Bible. He quoted scripture after scripture, and he explained what all of these things meant concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what happened? That word suddenly created where there was nothing before 3,000 believers who joined the church. Suddenly this edifice, this cathedral to the glory of God was being built brick by brick. Well, now it would be exceedingly, exceedingly strange, wouldn't it, if that group of people said, well, we'll decide what the Bible is. We'll decide what is true and what is not. You were created. You were brought into existence by this word. How can you decide whether it's true or not? And to be frank and to be absolutely clear, I mean, the church itself, despite all its brilliance and its insight and its understanding, is still a deeply flawed place filled with deeply flawed people. We are sinners who see things poorly, and we can disagree and argue all day about whether this book belongs or that one belongs or whether these are included or not. What do we do with the Apocrypha, for example, those books between Malachi and Matthew? Should they be in? Should they be not in? You see, the Bible doesn't derive its authority from the church. The church derives its authority from the Bible. And that means you understand that there really is only one solution to how do we know the Bible is the Bible? And, and the simple way to, to explain it is, is to maybe ask a, a series of questions like these. How can a blind man see? How can a deaf man be made to hear? How can a lame man be made to walk? See, that's really what we're up against here. How can blind men see the things of God in His Word? How can deaf men understand what God has said to them? How can lame men live and leap to the glory of God? Don't you see, there really is only one way. And that's the way that is presented to us on the pages of Scripture. When Jesus said, take up your bed and walk, when Jesus touched the eyes of the blind or touched the ears of the deaf and opened them up and gave them life. The only possible way the deaf, the blind, and the lame can be healed is if God works a powerful and profound miracle in their lives. And that shouldn't surprise us because that's always been true. Go all the way back to the beginning when God made man. Think of man there shaped by God from the dust of the earth, from the clay of the ground, and see before your eyes a perfectly formed man who is lifeless who is without any kind of vibrancy or energy. His heart isn't beating. Indeed, it's all made of dust. It is all made of clay until God breathes life into him. Until God breathes the breath of life into him. And suddenly that dead, that lifeless clay creature becomes a living soul. 
Indeed, remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus when he said that only if we're born again can we truly understand, can we truly be saved. Or think of what we read in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 2, rather, in the verses 6 and following. What does Paul say there except exactly this? The only way you can know what God has done and what He has revealed is if you receive the Spirit of Christ in your heart. Only the Spirit can open our eyes, open our ears, give life to our limbs. Only then can we be convinced of the truth of God's Word. When the Spirit of Christ Himself works His revelation within our hearts. Now for many, that sounds like a cop-out. For many say, well, that's convenient, isn't it? How do you know the Bible is the Bible? Well, you have to believe. You have to have faith. You have to trust. And that seems to, to beg the question. You haven't proved anything. Why should I believe it if I don't know that it's true? But it's not a cop-out. It is the necessary consequence of the creature-creator distinction that is that God is God and we are not. It's only when we try to erase that difference, which the devils wanted us to do from the very beginning, that we can demand tangible proof from God and insist that He come down and satisfy our expectations. But when we recognize that we cannot transcend that distinction between who God is and what we've done, then we realize it will only and always take the work of God's grace to open our eyes to see the truth. The only way we can know that the Bible is the Bible is if God works in us by His Spirit. That's what the confession says. It is not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but above all because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God. The Westminster Confession shares that very same conviction. There are lots of things that you can raise up as proof that the Word of God is brilliant, powerful, lovely, awesome, unique, The the Westminster Confession listed a number of them for us. It's consistency. It's the fact that all the parts fit together, that over all of these years, all of these different authors, there's yet one message. The fact that it has life-renewing power, that when people read it, they are brought to salvation in Jesus Christ. The fact that it has a majesty, that when you read it, when you read Shakespeare, you stand amazed at the man's use of language. When you read the Bible, you see even greater glory, variety, and layers of wonder to behold there are lots of things that we can point to as being true of the bible but as the westminster says and indeed as the baltic confession says it ultimately boils down to this the holy spirit the holy spirit demonstrates their truth and only after you've been received you've received the holy spirit can you truly understand all of those things that prove It's power. Don't misunderstand. The evidence that the Bible is the Bible is plenty and without without, uh, uh, reservation. There there is so much that we can show. Indeed, listen to what the Belgic Confession says. It says, even the blind themselves are able to see that the things predicted in them do happen. 
That is a reference, isn't it, to the test that Moses gave in Deuteronomy 18 to the prophet who would come. And this prophet, when he comes, if he tells you something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, then that prophet is not from God. That makes sense, right? If he can't tell you what the future is going to bring, he's not talking to God. God knows the future, and if He says it's going to rain tomorrow, then it's going to rain tomorrow. If He says uh, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and take Israel into, into, into exile, then He's going to come. When God gives His Word, it's going to happen. When He says that there are going to be these kingdoms that rise up, and there'll be these ten horns, and then this one more horn of Daniel, and it happens exactly the way God predicted, that there is a, 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 a desolation that takes place in the temple under Tiglath-Pileser. When... when Daniel prophesies of these things hundreds of years before they happen. They demonstrate the evidence that God's Word is true. Even the blind can see that the things predicted in the Bible are true. But you see, even the blind need the Spirit of Christ to know these things. It is only when we're made alive only when we are able to understand what God has accomplished, only when we lay down our lives before the Lord in faith and acknowledge Him as our only hope and salvation, only then does any of this make sense. Then it makes perfect sense. Then we see how it all fits together. We see how it is all true. Then then it convicts and convinces our hearts of the wonder of God's love. For that's what the Bible is, isn't it? It's a grand story of God's love for us. It is a grand revelation of God's grace for us in Jesus Christ. Indeed, that's what, that's what, what lies at the heart of all of the promises of God. At the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, he said there's going to be a boy that's going to be born and he's going to save you. And that promise came to pass. That's... that's evidence that's the evidence that we have that the bible is the bible because jesus came because he died and rose again because we believe because the spirit lives in our hearts but none of that matters unless you believe none of that matters unless you surrender your life to the lord there therein lies the real challenge of ministering to those who are living in darkness Prove to me, they say, that the Bible is the Bible. The answer we give is, I can't. Only God can. But He will if you trust Him. If you lay down your life at His feet. If you cry out to Him, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And that's not a cop-out. That's not an avoidance of the problem. That is a necessary consequence of the fact that we are sinners and He is our Savior that we are creatures and He is our Creator. But when we give our lives to the Lord in that way, then even as the Westminster Confession reminds us, we receive this book, this Bible, because it is the Word of God. And we are convinced of it by the Spirit's presence and power in our hearts and in our lives. And we rejoice to know that this is the God that we serve. Let's thank Him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Word that is so maligned and disregarded and dismissed by society who want us to prove to them 
who want you to prove to them, who want to sit in judgment on you and your word when they should be submitting their hearts to you, when they should be allowing your spirit to guide and guard them in the way of faith and in the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be an example to them. Help us to defend Your Word with great passion. Help us to trust it. Help us to be convinced of its truth, of its power and authority. And help us to do that, Lord, by first surrendering our hearts to You. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.